Hey guys, welcome back to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to other people about their stories with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which I have myself as well. My name's Katie, and today I have Jennifer with me to tell us about her and her son's story with vets. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Katie. Hey, so thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad I could do so. Me too. So you have a son... Uh, Cade. Yes. Cade, yep. He is 16. All right. And tell me about how it came to be that you found out that he had vets. Yeah. So um, actually, uh, our story might be a little bit different than than others, but I mean, I'm assuming over time this might become more common, um, people finding out about vets. So um uh, Cade, actually, we were doing genetic testing for other reasons. Um, he uh, uh, was diagnosed when he was two and a half with autism spectrum disorder um, and is doing great um, right now. But um, as part of my job, I, I do a lot of uh, um, work with researchers who are looking into the genetics of autism. Um, and so I was just really curious about <clears throat> about looking into, um, genetics and we've had his testing done multiple times throughout his life for different reasons. Um, but this latest one a couple years ago was really more because the, the whole exome sequencing became, um, more clinically relevant and available through insurance. Um, and so we said, well, why let's try it again. Let's see if anything shows up for the autism and Nothing showed up for autism, but um, we did get the incidental finding for the CAL3A1 um, gene, and that's how we found out about VADS. So that was an incidental finding on, like, an exome mutation test for autism? Yeah, it was the whole exome sequencing, so looking at all of the protein coding um, uh, genes in the genome. So, uh, yeah, so it's been becoming a lot more common recently, and I think that may be one way that we might be identifying additional VEDS patients, you know, going forward. That's crazy. Yeah. I was not expecting it at all. Had you ever (laughs) even heard of VEDS before that diagnosis came back? You know, I I actually had not. However, um, I myself have like hypermobile spectrum disorder, so not an official hypermobile Mm -hmm. Ehlers-Danlos. And my son is super tall and super thin and has a lot of kind of Marfan-like characteristics um, just physically. And so I was always wondering if there was a relationship between my hypermobility and anything that he was experiencing. And so I did, because we had a relationship with the geneticist from his various testings over the years, I did actually ask her about Marfans at one point, which she did the clinical test and said, no, he doesn't have Marfans. So I did not know anything about beds, but I kind of had something in my mind about Marfans, (laughs) at least. That's Um, fascinating. Yeah. So did you get tested yourself too? I well, as part of his whole exome sequencing. So what they do is they take the sample, the blood sample from both him and his dad and me, just to see what is different mm-hmm. um, in the exome results. And so they were able to say that you know his result was a de novo result or something that showed up first in him. It wasn't anything that either I or his dad carried. Okay. So. How old was he when he was diagnosed? So he was 14, yeah, when we got the got the call from the genetic counselor. 
And how did you handle that with a 14-year-old? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, obviously, it wasn't anything where there had been stuff going on with him medically Mm -hmm. that he was waiting for us to kind of help him out to understand. Um, So basically, you know, I did get the call from the genetic counselor. Um, I work from home uh, in my upstairs office, and I remember getting the call from the genetic counselor, and I knew the kids were getting home soon. And so as he was kind of relaying to me the information, I'm furiously scribbling down the information and Googling it. And then I just remember kind of like trying not to sob loudly, you know, as I was looking through all the information because it was totally unexpected. And um, I knew they were going to be walking in the door any minute. (laughs) So it was one of those situations where you sort of are, it was completely unexpected. I had no idea how to respond really, but I knew that, you know, it wasn't something that I wanted to alarm him of, you know, because it wasn't anything that was affecting him today. So I think we did have a little bit more time in that way to sort of try to process it, you know, as parents Mm -hmm. and figure out what level of information is something he needs to know right away, like something that affects his day to day and then how to, I mean, I think that in many respects, it's sort of trying to figure out what, what to say to, to be helpful, um, but not unnecessarily alarmist (laughs) if it's not needed, you know, so that he can kind of go on with his day to day and live his life and, um, but still get to the point where obviously he's going to be transitioning to adulthood soon. So, um, he's going to need to be taking on a lot of that thought process in hopefully a manageable way. And he's 16 now. He's 16 now. Yeah. So at what point did you tell him and how did that go? I know a lot of parents struggle with that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, so one of the first things is, okay, so what needs to happen right away? Um, We needed to alert the school that if there were anything to happen. And as of that point there, we, there had been nothing medically that had happened that would have clued us in to him having any problems with VEDS. So it wasn't, you know, that, oh, if this happens again, make sure to do X, Y, Z. Um, so it was, uh, you know, putting together a plan with the school, um, it was super helpful to get connected with um, um, doctors, Byers and Shalhoub at UW and get kind of our little medical passport that gave us more information about <laughs> how to structure, like, with the school, how to put in an emergency plan. Um, but then the biggest thing for him was we, he needed to get a medical alert bracelet, right? So we needed to explain what that was. And I realized they don't have enough medical alert bracelets that have the information on the inside of the tab. Because for a lot, for him, he doesn't want to be broadcasting that necessarily mm-hmm. to all of his friends, but he needs to have the information kind of on his person. You know, he's at this point, he doesn't carry a wallet yet. He doesn't have a driver's license yet. So (laughs) he's got to carry it on his wrist, you know, Um, there's nowhere for him to carry around that passport. So, um, so I think part of it is that, and I think our, our initial explanations really were, were trying to be a little bit more gentle about, um, you know, talking, I, I think using words like rupture and any sort of words that would be more alarming, I think we tried to avoid at the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I think as he's getting older now, um, and understanding a little bit more and me needing to emphasize a little bit more what the ramifications are, if he doesn't follow (laughs) certain things, then, you know, we're, we're kind of to that point about, you know, needing to be more specific about what, you know, what could really happen. Um, but to date, I mean, really he, he hasn't had any, um, major complications. He did have a, a pneumothorax this year um, within the past couple months. So that was his first experience of being in the hospital and having a chest tube and, you know, having to worry about, you know, that this might not be the only time this ever happens. And right. so, he's, so how did that happen? Yeah. So it was just, it was odd, you know, just over a weekend, he was complaining of pain in his side. There wasn't anything horribly acute about about it but we went to see his pediatrician and based on his history of vets um he sent him to the er if we wouldn't have known that i'm sure he would have said you know because he is so tall and thin and um a lot of that like growth information you know the growth of the you know quick growth i mean he's six seven at this point wow so, he like really grew fast. And so a lot of the, you know, early on, if he'd ever have any chest pains or in his ribs or something, they'd say, you know what, that happens a lot with boys when they're growing and possibly girls too. But, you know, being Mm -hmm. a boy, they focus on that. Um, you know, it's probably just, you know, some pain and, and, you know, some based on his quick growth. Um, but based now that we know of the VEDS, they said, you know what, He's not exhibiting any major problems, but why don't you go to the ER just to get checked? And so they did the x-ray and went, yep, he's got a pneumothorax, you know, as long as flap, why don't we admit him? <laughs> so we wouldn't have, yeah, I mean, in that way, there are things that, that the medical system is watching out for yeah. that uh, we're able to nip in the bud and things not necessarily hopefully getting, you know, severe before we end up uh, presenting in the ER. Well, that's good you had a doctor that really paid attention to what was going on. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good. I mean, obviously our pediatrician basically knew nothing about VEDS when we first started, but, but we were lucky that we have one that's willing to learn, you know, that is, is looking into things on his own and, um, and is really willing to say when he doesn't know something, you know, and when he need to go to see the experts. So you said Cade was a de novo mutation. Mm Mm-hmm. So how did his, I know I've heard a lot that de novo mutations, um, like the pregnancies can be a little weird. So how is that yours? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, I don't know that his, um, I don't know that I thought his pregnancy was, was off in any way. The the one thing I, of course is hindsight is 2020, but, um, uh, really early on, like within the first eight weeks, I started bleeding and, um, it was, uh, the placenta was starting to tear away from the wall, um, hmm. of the inside of the uterus. And, uh, at that point they said, well, you know, you just have to wait and see what happens. Um, and, uh, when he was born, he was, it, we, we did the ultrasound, uh, you know, their ultrasound process and they found that he would had bilateral club feet, um, mm-hmm. in utero. And then when he was born, um, we found that he also had uh, amniotic banding. So, and again, they may have, they might know no, more about this now than they did then, but at least my understanding over the years and at least from then is that it's, 
fibers from the inside of the amniotic sac that get wrapped around appendages. So the recurrence, you know, is basically one in 10,000 births because sometimes they get, they get wrapped around vital organs or, or something, but his were wrapped around his fingers and toes. So he was born with um, uh, several um, partial fingers and a few missing toes wow. uh, just, just from that. And he had some, you know, so obviously he left the hospital with his, um, teeny tiny little casts on his legs for his, <laughs> for his club feet. And then, um, and then he's had to have surgeries over the, you know, during the first year of his life to do some correction with his hands and feet and yeah. uh, all of that. So, um, so there, so at first, you know, I thought, well, maybe all of that environmental insults early on in utero could have contributed to the autism diagnosis. And, um, but I was really surprised when I connected with the VEDS community and it sounds like the, the occurrence of club feet and amniotic banding is, is increased with mm-hmm. individuals of VEDS. And so whether there was something going on with the connective tissue in utero um, that caused all that to happen, I mean, some of those, if that is the case, then some of the, our questions are starting to get answered in some ways about why that all happened early on. Yeah, they also think that the um, early birth might be connected too, but there's no research yet. I don't think. Yeah, Does he, right. Was he early? Was he a preemie? Um, he was ten days early. Um, his brother, who came afterwards, was three and a half weeks early, and he has no beds or anything. Mm-hmm. So um, I always <laughs> thought, you know, after the first one, I thought, oh God, I didn't even have the the car seat together ten days early because my <laughs> mom was always late with us. I'm definitely going to be ready two weeks before my next one, and then. His brother came and three week, three and a half weeks early, and I always think just to like make a joke out of me. <laughs> like, and I definitely wasn't ready three and a half weeks early <laughs> for the second one. So yeah, but he he was a little bit early, but not, um, not significant. Super super early. Yeah. Okay. Um, does so you have another son too? Did he get tested for events? So he didn't, oh, yes, he did get tested. So um, they thought it was extremely unlikely that he would have anything because nothing showed up in his, in either um, myself or their dad, um, but just because of the risk of, you know, potential yeah. mosaic um, uh, presentation. So he did get tested and he was negative. Okay. So, and again, that was sort of a, they said, it's so, so unlikely that he has this, but let's test him anyway. And I, that was so stressful because <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do if he comes? You know, it was yeah. just that that worry. Like, I knew he most likely was not affected, but you never know. Um, so it was really relieving to hear that he, he was okay. Good. That's good. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier when we talked that um, – Kate had gone through, I think, three different rounds of different types of testing for the VEDS. Right. Yeah. So early on, so because of the birth um, or the birth of defects with the um, club feed and the amniotic banding, um, just as part of like family planning advice, um, you know, they, they hooked us up with a geneticist and this was back in 2002. So whatever was available then, um, our major question was, is there something that we did or is there something that would indicate that this is more likely to occur with our, with any future children that we have, um, specifically the, the club feed or the end banded. And so we saw someone 
Um, they did some testing, and to be honest, I can't even tell you exactly what testing they did. I'm guessing it was a panel that was associated at the time with yeah. similar conditions. Um, and they, you know, I just remember going in and them saying, you know, this is this really is something that would be extremely rare to happen again. Like this is this is most likely would never happen. This was just a random occurrence. Um, so that was sort of an, giving us an answer, not necessarily to what the cause was of, of Cade's, um, issues, but more, is this something that we have to think about as we plan for future children? Um, and then, um, as he got a little bit older and I got more involved in, um, uh, just professionally, like where my career led me was trying to connect with researchers that were doing more autism research, um, a lot of that um, in my area was was looking into the genetics of autism, and so I uh, we went back. Um, I think he was maybe eight or something, and I went back to a geneticist and said, "Is there any new technology? Is there worth? Is it worth going back and looking at other things? Specifically, now that we know he has a diagnosis of autism, in addition to um, the club feet and amniotic banding." So, at that time, they did a, sp- a panel specific to. Um, autism at the time, which was, you know, fragile X, P10. I mean, there were several genes that had been implicated in, um, in the diagnosis of autism then, which obviously now has grown leaps and bounds since then. Um, and then the final time was a couple years ago when, uh, it was more of a curiosity. Like I had been working with a lot of these rare, um, disorder groups that were associated with autism and neurodevelopmental disorder. And I was just thinking, you know, technology has again progressed, you know, <laughs> bounds, maybe we would get an answer this time. And so that's, that's why we uh, pursued going through one more time. So did you ever get any answers um, that you were looking for, for the autism stuff? Not yet. I mean, and you know, it's one of those things where um, I'm sure that, you know, the, the, what we had, what we looked at was the, the protein coding regions of the genome. So obviously there's a lot of the non-coding regions of the genome that I think in future years, um, scientists will know much more about. So it's potential that there could be, um, some answers there in the years to come. I think one of the things that is, is clear in working with a lot of, cause I work with a lot of groups in my other capacity, not VEDS related, is that, you know, and in, in especially as people get older, I think you get to a certain point where um, whatever you're dealing with, you kind of aren't necessarily looking for the same answers that you might have been looking for when, when your kids were younger, mm-hmm. uh, whether you've kind of started to figure out how to manage life in other ways or you, you're your focus isn't necessarily as much on why as much as it is on what can we do to help, you know, our child today with the struggles that they have now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, just in terms of later in life genetic testing, um, I'm not sure how much that's going to happen, like in the VEDS community for incidental findings for older individuals, for example, because um, they kind of you, fig- you start figuring out life in that way, I guess. Yeah. In a different way. Um, so you said that you, what do you do? 
So I'm a project manager. I work with um, uh, autism genetics research, basically okay. autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders. So we um, we run uh, registry programs for data collection and biospecimen collection for um, for different groups uh, with that have genetic variants um, that have been implicated in um, autism or other neurodevelopmental disorders, and so. Um, you know, and that list keeps growing and growing and growing. Um, and, and, the you know, it's, it's not even that it's just strictly autism, but a lot of the groups that, you know, if you have a variant in a certain gene, some people may present with autism specifically, some might be more epilepsy specific or other, you know, um, neuromuscular, um, challenges. And so each group kind of has, you know, they, it's, it's very much like a little microcosm of what we experience in the VEDS community and a lot of the same challenges and frustrations and um, the need to, to reach out and connect with other people who have your common, um, you know, experience yeah. and figuring out, like, you know, I know that a lot of stuff you are learning a ton on Facebook pretty immediately, <laughs> you know, from the whole community. And so, that, and that's very similar to a lot of the rare disease communities that we work yeah. with. And, um, but so, uh, so beneficial, you know, to, to have that network. So support. how is, how has Cade handled it? I don't, I'm trying to, I don't know if you would be part of the Facebook group yet at 16. Right. And, He's Just actually curious. very anti-social media, so he may not join. <laughs> He's not a big fan of social media, which is totally fine. I'm mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Um, I, that's one less worry that I have to have. Um, yeah. But uh, for teenagers, but yeah, so he. Um, I think he's been able to communicate to us pretty clearly about what information he wants to know and what stuff he's not ready to know about yet. Okay. Um, and I think as long as he's, you know, living at home and, you know, kind of still a minor and, you know, there are certain things that we don't necessarily need to let him know. It, he's definitely not someone that's going to go out and Google okay. um, beds. And, and then be coming to us with lots of questions. I think he's in a space of being much more avoidant in that way, just mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to handle the information that he's been given so far. And is there anything that he liked to do when he was 14 that you had to stop him from doing? Or how have you handled that kind of like activity? Yeah. Right. That's a good question. Um, you know, in, in a weird way, the um, uh, um, many people with autism, not all by any stretch of the imagination, but um, many have uh, challenges with, um, you know, kind of motor planning or, you know, so he's never seen himself as sort of a super athletic person. Um, uh, you know, he enjoys going out and doing just kind of recreational type things, you know swimming around in the pool, but not competitively or, Mm -hmm. you know, so he wasn't really into sports teams that he had to, um, bow out of or, um, any kind of rough housing. He's never been kind of a, you know, he and his brother have never been tumbling around the house (laughs) (laughs) in a way that I have to worry about holes appearing in the walls or anything like that. Um, so in that way, I don't, (laughs) um, but yeah, I mean, so I think in that way it, it didn't, it wasn't as much of a blow as I 
can imagine it is for some kids that yeah. are really into that, that, that are told they, they can't do it anymore. Um, I think that there are some things that now that he's a teenager and he, you know, as all teenagers go through that wanting to be independent with their parents and not necessarily want to listen to what their parents are telling him they have to do. Um, that's maybe where we're running into some challenges about, you know, daily care and things you have to watch out for and then feeling like, okay, but you're my parent telling me this and I'm going to say that I don't need to do any of that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I I don't know how, I don't think it's, it's not horrible at this point, but I think it's probably just, it's going to be a source of frustration, you know, for him. And, um, I think the more in that way, the more he can, I'm actually really looking forward to some of the conferences coming up where there can be other peers, um, that he can meet and align with. And so that way he's kind of hearing information from other people other than his parents. Cause I think once you get into teenage years, that can be hard. Oh, I imagine. Yeah. Cause I mean, I wasn't diagnosed until my late twenties. Right. Yeah. I can't imagine that if my mom was telling me to right. do something and I'd be like, I don't want to can't do this. Have Sorry. to do this. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. So Last you guys... person you want to hear any of that from. Right. So you guys are going to the comp- the Marfan, um, yeah, the annual conference. Yes, we're really looking forward to to seeing everybody there. Yeah, I'm so excited for that. Yeah, and I think by the time that this episode airs, we will have already gone. Yeah, yeah, I'm <laughs> sure, and I'm sure you will do a follow up. <laughs> yeah, uh, follow up about all the great things that we all learned. So mm-hmm. yeah, we're going to that one, and then I'll be at the um, at the um, the Ehlers Danlos Society meeting in Nashville, but um, uh, uh, won't be able to bring you know the family at that point. So, okay. um, but I think it'll be it'll be a good summer. Yeah, Cage should be able to get together with a lot of people. Yeah, at that conference in Houston. Yeah. So that's oh. awesome. Yeah. So, is there anything else that I didn't ask, or anything else that you know you would really like to share? Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the things that comes up, and of course, this is in in my other role as sort of um, working in you know designing and running registries for rare disease groups, is um, because every family and individual that's dealing with a rare um, disorder, and there are so many challenges just every day. You know, not only just getting through what you need to do in the day, but dealing with doctors, finding doctors, finding information. Um, uh, I'm sure that the last thing that people have time to do is signing up for registries and filling out surveys and uploading medical records and all of that stuff. Um, I just know from the groups that I work with um, in in my other role and then aligning with, um, you know, talking to people at the NIH and the FDA and pharmaceutical companies and that sort of thing is how important it is for the community as a whole to, um, obviously share what we can over Facebook too, but also put it in like a registry format that's more structured. That's something that researchers can point to, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's in a registry or an official natural history study, like the UW group is, is running, um, just getting the data in there because, um, the more it's, it's amazing what I've seen with some other groups, just the, the amount of, um, engagement from the community and the, 
the data that's entered and then used subsequently used by researchers, it can just really springboard um, into. And I know a lot of the, um, I know there's been a lot of discussion already about what, you know, pharmaceutical options are available or not available in VEDS currently. Um, but even as we think about kind of next generation or, you know, as, as things progress, um, pharma companies, I mean, in terms of overall investment, I think showing that there are, there are engaged people in the community ready to participate and give information, I think goes a long way to people, you know, making decisions to invest significant amounts of money, um, Mm -hmm. in, in progressing, you know, progress in, you know, research into the disease. And so it's like, I, I see, I I am in a position to see both sides of the coin at this point, (laughs) sort of the, Oh God, I've worked all day at work. And do I really have time to sit down for an hour and fill out more surveys, you know, but then on the other side going, Oh my gosh, yes, look at the numbers grow and people, you know, now we have so many more researchers engaged. And so I guess just overall, just the message of the importance of, you know, whenever possible in all of our crazy lives, um, trying to find that time if you can to, to contribute to any of the research is, is just so important to, um, you know, I for agree. Our unit. I am yeah. so excited for that UW natural history study. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be amazing. And I think everybody's going to learn so much, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's, um, uh, and I, and I totally get, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, my son getting older and even getting into young adulthood and thinking, is he going to want to be participating? <laughs> you know, like, how, how do I engage, like, not even young adults, but even as people get older and they're having to deal with things and, and how do they, how do you see the value for you yourself in putting together this, this information? And, and hopefully the more information gets out there, it just keeps building and building and building until, you know. Um, kind of things sort of break loose and Mm -hmm. and we start getting a ton more answers. Yeah. I am so excited for that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing yours and Cage's story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you. (laughs) Anytime. I love talking to you too. And thank you everybody for listening. This was staying connected and this was Jennifer and Cade's story with feds. Um, I have new episodes coming out on the last Sunday of every month. So be on the lookout, subscribe to the podcast if you want to hear more and we'll talk to you soon.